welcome to Transform Michigan on the Michigan Business Network. My name is Angela Waters-Boston, CEO of One Love Global, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sean Holland, aka Mordecai. And we want to welcome you to today's show with Tashnika Tora of the Firecracker Foundation. Transform Michigan explores the question, what would Michigan look like if we were to transform systems, policy, practice, and culture so that everyone wins? Transform Michigan will look deep into topics of embodiment, boundaries, harm, creativity, and more with people who are working to reshape our world and Michigan. This is a podcast of possibilities. Again, welcome to Transform Michigan. Hey, family, I want to thank you for being here, Angela. I'm so excited for this conversation and to all of those that are a part of, you know, just our network and even the Michigan Business Network and our listeners. Again, this is an ongoing conversation in and around the HOPE initiative. And the HOPE initiative stands for the Health Opportunity and Equity Initiative, which has done an amazing job by providing interactive data so that we can begin to look at our communities across Michigan. And so, you know, the topic that we have chosen to bring to our listeners and really dive deep in is the issues of community safety. And when we talk about the HOPE data, there are five key domains that, you know, they've looked at and measured, you know, across the community and 27 different indicators. And so on today, we want to remind our listeners that the data shows that Michigan ranks 43 out of the 50 states in community and safety factors, 43. And so this is a very important conversation. Those of you all that's been listening, we know that in order to move Michigan to a place of hope, we have to move almost 1.7 million Michiganders across the finish line. And so today's discussion will be centered in and around sexual assault and sexual violence. And we are joined today by a very special guest, and it's going to be an amazing conversation that we're going to have. And we want to welcome Tajmika Tarak to Transform Michigan. Tajmika, just wanted you to feel welcome, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so enthusiastic about this conversation because it's a very important one. And so Tajmika is the founding co-director of the Firecracker Foundation. And Angela, how are you feeling about this conversation? Because we have really been looking forward to diving deep into this conversation. I think it's one of the most urgent conversations that we can have. You know, we've been talking about the hope data in Michigan and the distance to close the gap. And really understanding that we continue to look at inequities across the state and yet the data on sexual assault is data that we tend to vary. And when we look at the data and how many counties in Michigan actually have communities where you are not living, where there's a high rate of sexual assault. So the data really looks at, you know, what are the assets? And for, you know, so few communities to actually be in an environment where people can feel safe from sexual assault, that should be the headline. Like that's the lead that we keep bearing and we can't do it anymore. So I'm so grateful that you're here to really open this up and to go deep into the beautiful work that you do with healing communities because there is hope. Yeah, there is hope. Unfortunately, 
when I look at statistics like this, I know that it's worse, right? Like the data is always written on what is being reported. And we know that sexual assault, sexual violence across the board is a very underreported experience, both generally, but definitely within the Black community. Tajmika, before we jump into the data and have this conversation, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and the Firecracker Foundation? Yeah, sure. I am the founding co-director, as you mentioned it. I started this organization in 2013 as a survivor of child sexual assault and incest. I wanted to create a community that was invested in helping children heal in a holistic way. We have grown exponentially. We offer things like Title IX advocacy, mental health therapy, trauma-sensitive yoga, or embodied movement. Really, we want people to be able to find a community where they can both feel less alone and also can have access to what is healing for them. Because it's not one thing. It will never be one thing that will solve the trauma of sexual violence or end it. It will be many things and our collective wisdom and our own discernment of what our bodies, hearts, minds need to heal. And we look to be that place that can offer those things. You're listening to Transform Michigan on the Michigan Business Network. We'll be back. Sinair has been advancing communities and providing opportunities for people in Michigan for more than 25 years. Through lending, investments, and the creation of homes and jobs, Sinair has made a combined $7 billion impact on the communities they serve. Learn more at www.sinair.com. Thank you for joining us on Transform Michigan on the Michigan Business Network. I think a leading question could be just the environment that we find ourselves in post-COVID because this data is, you know, kind of looks at post-COVID or COVID impacts and kind of move into it from that standpoint. You know, what were some things that, you know, your organization saw during COVID and some impacts? I think that would be a great lead in. I think that Tosh is really onto something because this data actually is pre-COVID. And I think opening up our minds to as bad as this data is, the reality is much worse is important. And also I think the racial inequity is probably where, if we're gonna look within the state rather than kind of across the states, like whose communities are most impacted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that will be the argument, right? It's like, oh, it's just those other people who have those issues when we know that, you know, sexual violence doesn't discriminate. So if we're, looking at numbers that are showing that one community has it worse than other, we probably should also talk about intergenerational trauma and where this comes from within our community in particular, but also the intergenerational trauma of being enslavers and what it means to not understand consent or have a practice of bodily autonomy for generations and how that impacts people and how that creates more violence. So it's just such a deep issue, you know, and that's why I always want to talk about it, because I'm just like this idea of, you know, trying to stop it through policing and prisons is just such a ridiculous idea when you really look at how it's policed, who gets policed, and how prison actually creates more, you know, criminal behavior. So people who go into prison, you know, come out worse, and there's no 
addressing of that sort of violence and that trauma. So we cause trigger points for sexual violence. Like we are creating it. We are manifesting it as a country through incarceration, through deportation, through churches and religious spaces. We have a lot of responsibility in what is created and we are giving the responsibility to the police to fix a problem that the state is also creating. So it's just the cycle of harm and violence. We talked about it as much as we could talk about it without you before. So this is you and your chance to have a conversation with Michigan about what's real and what is the story behind the data. Right. Because here's the thing we need to reckon with first and foremost about sexual violence is that in particular, when we're talking about children and youth, it's happening in their homes or it's happening with people that they know, love and trust. Right. So if it's not in their own home, it's within relationship. And I think we don't talk about that enough. And that the same is true a lot of the times for adult sexual violence. The idea that a stranger is going to jump out at you is what most people experience. Obviously, that happens. And that's what gets the most attention because that's terrifying and often can be incredibly violent and lead to death. And also, if we could eradicate the most common experience within relationship, then we wouldn't really have a lot of sexual violence. We would be safer. And so when I think about where we have to start, we have to start within relationship. And so this idea that we're going to be able to improve community safety by policing and incarceration doesn't work when people don't want to report because it's someone that they know, love and trust. The average, like the median age of someone who discloses sexual violence is upwards of 40, if I remember correctly, for child sexual abuse, right? So like people are holding on to these stories because they don't want someone who they know, love and trust to end up in jail, or they don't want their family to be disrupted. Even if they want all those things, they're not willing to accept the consequences that comes from a family blaming them or shunning them or pushing them out of the family. Mordecai and I are going to take a quick break and we'll be back on the Michigan Business Network. This is Transform Michigan. rates for a home equity line of credit? Ask for LaughQ. Stop in today or go to LaughQ.com slash home equity. LaughQ, your credit union for life. I'm your host, Angela Waters Austin, with my co-host, Sean, aka Mordecai Holland. And we are your hosts for Transform Michigan on the Michigan Business Network. We really have a lot of healing to do, bottom line. I like to tell people, and it's something that has been shared with me through both transformative justice practitioners and restorative justice practitioners, that we all cause harm and we have all been harmed. And so until we are ready to reckon with both sides of that coin, we're always going to be perpetuating violence. I think you get to the point of culture because when I hear you, Mordecai, talk about, you know, communities, Black, Indigenous communities where there's higher incidence 
And the way we look at hope data is so who actually benefits from communities where there is lower sexual assault rates? And is it a matter of lower sexual assault rates or a culture that is more silent, where there is less self-advocacy, where there's more private access to mental health, where it is inside of institutions like the church that suppress folks from actually being able to get the help or to be able to vocalize the harm. So I'm curious about this data. And if we were to look at data that could actually help communities heal, that could help us have different kind of conversations about relationships and take away the stigma mm-hmm. of being a survivor, how far do we go before we have conversations about the stigma of being a perpetrator and how that stigma actually continues? It continues the cycle. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I want to also just go back to what you said, too. We also have to think about who in our cultures and in our communities are discarded and targeted, right? We know that Black girls are six times more likely to experience sexual violence. And so it's also about who in our community is less safe. We also know that trans kids and kids who are non-binary also have a higher rate. So this is also about who do we discard? Who is worth protecting? Who is valuable? So when we're looking at this data, to your point, and we're seeing a higher experience in Black and Brown communities, that to me also says, like, these are the people that are less protected, less safe. And then in terms of, like, the stigma of perpetrators, I absolutely do feel like we have created, again, just like every other crime, right? Just like every other crime times a million, this idea that this person who caused harm needs to be pushed out of community. They need to be shunned. They need to go away forever. We put them on a registry, we track them for the rest of their lives. And, you know, there are benefits and negatives to that, right? Like, well, we know where they are. But, you know, I was talking about my dad earlier as being like a pragmatist. When I say I'm getting older, we're getting old, and he always says it beats the alternative. You either age or you die. But another thing that he always says is like prison is only for the people who got caught. You know, like, and so we're living in this community where we have this false sense of safety created by both mandated reporting, the prison system, the prison industrial complex, the sex offender registry. But those are the people who have been caught, which we know that like 99% of people who go to court don't go to prison, don't go to jail for sexual violence. So that's that number. And then we still have all the people who have not reported. So the extent of the problem is enormous. And then when you add COVID as a factor where people are isolated, kids don't have access to the people they would typically report to. And I don't want to lull anybody to think that like this is different than pre-COVID. It's worse because they're isolated at home, but kids are experiencing sexual violence at home already, sadly. And so I'm glad that COVID brought that to the surface where people were like, oh, what are we going to do? These kids don't have access to the trusted people in their lives. But I would argue that we should have been thinking about that. We should have already been having those conversations because homes are not always a site of safety. And we have a lot of work to do to build safe community just within ourselves and the people we know and love. Thank you for joining us on Transform Michigan on the Michigan Business Network. Follow us on Facebook 
at Transform Michigan. Managing your office supplies is key to a seamlessly functioning business. With over 90,000 items available for free next day delivery and no minimum order, DBI can solve all your office supply needs from pencils to coffee at the very best value. Call DBI and ask a sales representative to show you their product offerings or visit dbiyes.com and request a product catalog. DBI does all things office, office supplies, furniture, and environments. Welcome back to Transform Michigan on the Michigan Business Network. So Tush, you do this work daily. So One Love Global, this isn't the work that we do on a daily basis. So from your perspective and being in a network of other healers and others who work with families and with children, where do you see the possibilities? Where do you see people finally getting it? Are there places that Michigan can learn from or people that we can learn from? Absolutely. I definitely see so much hope in working with survivors. I think that is where the hope lies because that's where the disruption happens, right? When a survivor is able to come forward and they're met with community that is supportive of their healing above and beyond what we consider justice in the criminal legal system. At the Firecracker Foundation, we will support you through any process you want to go through, but you don't have to go through any process to get help. You know, we're not going to push you to go through the court system. We're not going to push you away from the court system. We just really want to be there to allow people to have the journey that they want, to get the answers to the questions that they have. And so I think in a lot of ways, watching people regain their self-trust, watching people advocate for themselves and their families, and taking that into the community. Survivors really do change their families, change the way that their families move into the future based on the sharing of their stories, the healing that they're doing. If those families, if those people who are in relationship with them can allow that change to occur. So it can't always be on the backs of survivors. I tell people all the time that we will not end sexual violence by healing survivors. That will not happen because survivors are not the ones causing the harm. So if we really want to address sexual violence, then we do have to step outside of that stigma. We do have to work with perpetrators. We do have to figure out what is causing this rape culture to continue to be perpetuated to the point that we are not safe. And then in terms of like people who we can learn from, there are a lot of different organizations. A couple that come to mind are SOIL. It's a transformative justice project by Mia Mingus that's specifically focused on child sexual abuse. There's Creative Interventions is another resource that talks about ways to intervene. Shira Hassan put out a full toolkit. I mean, it's enormous. It's probably more information than most people would want. Miriam Kaba is another great resource. She's prolific. There's so much information out there. She's written books and articles. Sujatha Baliga, who is the MacArthur Fellow, who's a restorative justice practitioner. There are people out there who are actively working to 
push abolition principles forward, but specifically around topics of sexual violence, which I think is so critical because people are like, oh, yeah, I can imagine a restorative justice circle if someone just punches me in the face, you know, or breaks into my house or, you know, steals my car or does some kind of damage to my property. Like my imagination can hold that. I think for a lot of people, imagining that you can have some sort of healing justice process with someone who caused sexual violence is just beyond their imagination, which is why I'm always inviting people to start small and to do the reading. Read about people who have done that. I have personal friends who are in relationship with people who have caused them harm because they went through a process with them. And I can say that I don't understand it, right? Like my perpetrator's dead, so I will never have that opportunity. But I do think that there are moments where I'm like, wow, that is so big. I don't know how to hold that in my brain. And so I just keep watching them. I keep reading. I keep learning about where those spaces are for grace Where are those spaces for reckoning and understanding that this is not okay, that you don't have to be in relationship with someone who harmed you, you know, and rage and anger and sorrow and all of those things are valid. And also recognizing that someone has to work with those people. Someone has to figure it out. And it can't just be survivors over here doing all the labor on that, because that's the only way we're going to stop it. What does that work look like? So what does the work with perpetrators look like in a different way? Because as you said, the prison industrial complex doesn't offer much more than hardening and new skills Mm -hmm. and more trauma for that person to act out when they are released. Yeah, it can look lots of different ways. Currently, I like to use the example of you know, a high schooler who chose to grope another student, right? Like she was passing by in the hallway. And this is just an example. This did not really happen. But this is an example that I use. And they were friends. And they love each other, you know, and this thing caused a disruption in their relationship. And they went through a process where he had to acknowledge the harm that was caused. And she was able to say, I just don't want this to ever happen again. They're both able to access resources for what is needed on both sides. And then they get to negotiate what the future of their relationship looks like. So what boundaries do we now have in this new iteration of our relationship? Are we friends? Are we never going to speak again? These are things that can be negotiated. And when I think about this process is it's very specialized. It's very customized for every person who experiences it because not everybody wants the same thing, you know, and not everybody receives an apology the same way. Not everybody can give an apology. And the other thing that I think is really important to note is that not every healing justice process has to involve a perpetrator. We have parents who don't believe their child that should sit in circle and be accountable. That's a part of ending rape culture. We have administrators that shame and blame survivors. That could be a process of accountability. Not all sexual violence process, whether it be TJ or RJ, have to be about the person who caused harm. It can also just be about this culture is toxic and violent and you're a part of it. You created harm on top of a harm that I'd already experienced that needs to be addressed so that we can be in right relationship. And so that when we break apart, you're not just going to go over here and cause more harm. And I'm not going to just move forward and pretend like it didn't happen and swallow all of that pain 
and injustice and lose my family and my relationships and my job and like all these things that happen. You're listening to Transform Michigan on the Michigan Business Network. We'll be back. Now hiring? Capital Area Michigan Works can assist you with your hiring needs, all at no cost. From large-scale hiring assistance to locating the right candidate for a hard-to-fill position, Capital Area Michigan Works is your resource. We offer creative solutions from career fairs to on-the-job training grants and scholarship programs to make sure you have the best and brightest employees. Visit our website at www.camw.org to learn more about how we can assist your business with its hiring needs. I'm your host, Angela Waters Austin, with my co-host, Sean, a.k.a. Mordecai Holland. And we are your hosts for Transform Michigan on the Michigan Business Network. Follow Transform Michigan at Transform Michigan on social media. There's so many things, you know, that we talked about. Can you just address again, like it almost, you know, brought me to tears if I really allowed my mind to kind of, you know, process what we're talking about, right? I'm trying to kind of not get so super connected just for this conversation, but the complexity of sexual violence happening right in the home Mm. and especially with children and minors and that whole reporting. Can you just kind of walk us through that? Because I think sometimes we look at the numbers, but we need to really understand the narrative behind this data, right? And so just can you lift that up again? Absolutely. So we know that 90% of children know, love, and trust the person who causes them harm. And we also know that they are most likely to abuse between the ages of four and six which of course is the ages where we know the least amount about sexual behavior. It's where we are the most vulnerable. We don't have language to describe what's happening to us. We often don't know that what's happening to us is wrong, even if it feels bad because it's with someone who we love and trust and who has groomed us. We don't often know. And so for most kids, they're not going to disclose right away It'll come out later. And that is why COVID has been so challenging for kids in particular, because they're stuck at home with someone who is causing them harm. I mean, but we also have to talk about, you know, the fact that we don't want to pay people. We don't want people to have universal basic income and childcare and healthcare. Because if people had universal basic income and childcare, children would be safer. People wouldn't have to find people in community to care for their kids, right? Like we wouldn't be having somebody's uncle's cousin's friend watching our kids on a random Tuesday because I got to go into work and I can't miss work because, right? And it's COVID and we had no structures in place for families to seek help for those things. I mean, of course, there's like state-sponsored stuff, but like this was a crisis, right? And people's kids were being sent home and they're working to be able to pay to live in their homes and trying to survive a global pandemic. So children were less safe and they will continue to be less safe as long as we don't actually 
provide people with basic needs in this country, you know, above and beyond these corporate interests and things like that. So that's one thing I think we should also acknowledge about how this happens. But then when kids do come forward, if they do come forward to someone who's a mandated reporter, then they report that incident either to CPS or the police, depending on who was the one causing harm. And then the process begins. And I think there are so many people that I know who are survivors who were children. And that experience of being what some would consider rescued was incredibly harmful to their family in one way or another. And they don't have choice. People in their family are being removed. And there's all the responses of the adults around them. It's a traumatic experience. Then you add things like disability, you add things like immigration status, you add things like language barriers, and it gets even more complicated. So the other thing that I think that we have believed that is not true is that mandated reporting is a save-all in our community, and it's not. And it's also weaponized. It's weaponized against Black parents. Right. We know that there is the what is it called? The foster care to prison pipeline. We know that there are implications above and beyond just saving children when we're looking at it through a racial equity lens. And we as black people suffer that enough and have suffered that our families continue to be destroyed by the state. So at what point do we say this system is not working for us, for black people, and we have to figure out a different way to navigate these harms so that we can heal and so that we're not at the mercy of a government that has been trying to kill us since forever. Thank you, Tosh. No, this is really helpful. We'll be back on the Michigan Business Network. This is Transform Michigan. Physicians Health Plan is local. For 35 years, we've been a part of your community, and we take pride in helping you get the coverage, care, and personal service you deserve. Go to phpmichigan.com for more information. We're the health plan that works for you. Welcome back to Transform Michigan on the Michigan Business Network. We have to look at the data. So this part of the series that we're working on around this whole data is that, yes, there's the impact on the Black community and there's actually, according to the data, Indigenous communities are even less likely to live in a community where there is low rate of sexual assault. But you also talked about the difference that having a universal basic income could have, having universal access to high quality child care. So you think about, so communities that enjoy low rates of sexual assault and what they have. So this is Transform Michigan, and we're talking about possibilities. What would it look like if systems were transformed so everybody wins? So for those communities that have low rates of sexual assault, where maybe there's, you know, a full-time nanny that, you know, you know who your caregiver is 24-7. You know who's going to be picking up and dropping off your child you know, every day. You probably are in a position that you have some authority over who's in your school, who is in your church. There is a level of accountability in your community and a level of protection. You talked about that earlier on. So we know what can be done to create more safety, at least on a surface level. 
And we have to actually get to the culture and be honest that this is a country that elected a president, a president who did the very thing that you named with adolescence, Mm -hmm. groping, like Mm -hmm. a confessed (laughs) and openly, I would say, proud groper. Mm -hmm. And this is the culture that we're in. And so since COVID, that culture has exploded and has become more toxic and has become more violent. So I can't think of a better time than now for us to be having this conversation. That is the dream. I mean, that is the hope. That is the very reason that we're having these really difficult conversations because we can, we can do better. There are better ways forward. And I just want to thank you for being here with us on Transform Michigan, on the Michigan Business Network. And I just look forward to continuing this conversation because this can't be a one-time conversation. We can't just look at this data and then put it aside. This data is designed to transform policy. It's designed to transform systems. And it's designed for us to be able to name what we need and for us to do the hard work of diverting the resources where they belong so that we can have whole and healthy communities and families and that all of us who we know deserve protection, there is no human who doesn't deserve that protection. So I just thank you for casting a vision of hope for us and we will just continue to live into that vision and we look forward to collaborating with you and learning more and having more conversations with folks who really need to have them. Thank you. Thank you so much for wanting to have the conversation. I know it's a challenging thing to talk about. I don't necessarily enjoy the nuances of this conversation either. It's scary. There are scary things about it. And, you know, it is all about risk. You know, it is all about what are we willing to risk for our own liberation? What are we willing to risk to pull back from the state and white supremacy? And how we can do that in the safest way possible is really, it always comes back to belonging. We belong to one another. Our children belong to one another. Like, if we don't belong to one another, then we're never going to see our way to a freer future. And that's where I want to be. It probably won't happen in my lifetime, but I'd be happy to leave it to my kids. Yes. If we can at least begin to shape a world where we see ourselves in one another, we're far less likely to cause harm to one another. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us on Transform Michigan on the Michigan Business Network. 